Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Advocado, the podcast where we talk to people who've seen an injustice in the world and gone, you know what, I'm going to do something about that, I'm not just going to complain, I'm going to do something. Uh, with me, as every week, is my co-host Lydia. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, great, looking forward to another episode, another great chat coming up, so. I mean, this is becoming a habit now. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. <laughs> That's kind of how series of podcasts work. Yeah, so, it's true. yeah, it's a good habit to be in. They say regularity and consistency builds a listener base. You have to come <laughs> out at the same time. People need there to you expect go. you, build you into your routine. You have to build a habit on another habit. Okay. Well, that's just good life <laughs> advice, isn't it, too? Well, so. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. Life hacks with Chris Mead. There we are. That's my name. I forgot <laughs> to introduce myself. Still rubbish at hosting. Um, we have a wonderful guest with us this week. Her name is Gabby Edlin. She is the CEO of Bloody Good Period. And we are very, very happy to have her with us. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> thanks so much for coming. It's, uh, yeah, it's such a delight. Um... We're just going to jump into it, if that's sure. okay. Uh, there's not much podcast small talk. We just get straight Brilliant. in with the, the big questions. Great, I'm ready. So my first question is, um, have you always been someone who's socially active? And um, I guess, would you define yourself as an, an activist or a campaigner or something entirely different? I would definitely um, define myself now as an activist, yeah. But I think it's really important to note that activism isn't my job. My job is being CEO of Bloody Good Period. Yeah. And, and activism is, is a part of that because um, I think there's sometimes a misconception that, that activism is paid. Um, and, you know, if you can get paid activism job, that is brilliant and you absolutely should be, but it's just not. It's just something that you care about and you fight really hard for. And I've been lucky enough to surround myself with people who believe that women should be paid for the work that they do and I feel the same way and so the way it works is that I'm paid a salary from bloody good period and get to be an activist basically um, I just think that's quite important for people yeah. to, to know before um, but yeah I would call myself a period activist really um, very specific very specific yeah or you know I mean but in general I would also be like a feminist activist um, and I have been um I mean, I don't know if my parents would have called it an activist, but I would have been somewhat like a rebel without a cause, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or just an absolute pain in the ass for um, many, many years of my childhood. Um, I've always had some sort of sense of like injustice. Um, and I grew up in a Jewish youth movement, which was very much focused on social action, um, very much focused on sort of changing the world. Um, and so that's always been part of who I am. Um, and then when I sort of got into feminism, I guess, when I sort of realized what all of these feelings were mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when I was about 16, then I pretty much became an activist from there. But it really wasn't until mid to late 20s that I actually had a real outlet for it and really knew where where sort of my passion lay. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's always been something that's part of who I am, definitely. I love the idea that you were a rebel without a cause oh, and yeah. then you found a cause found and you became cause. a rebel with a cause. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I probably had the cause. I think I probably, the author, Laura, uh, the campaigner Laura Coryton, has, who's the end tampon tax campaigner, mm -hmm. has written a book called Speak Out. And it's for young people, but obviously it's brilliant for everyone. And she writes in it that she grew up in a similar way and she didn't know 
what it was she was angry about. She thought she was angry about being a girl. And then she realized later on, she wasn't angry about being a girl. She was angry about sexism. And I think it's really similar for me. That's how I felt for many years. I thought I was just, there was nothing to be angry about. But I realize now, like, absolutely was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I mean, what 10-year-old knows how to channel that? Yeah, definitely. Or, you know, in the 90s anyway. Yeah. <laughs> now 10-year-olds are better yeah, than us. Yeah, they know what yeah. they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's totally different now, but, you know, back then. Yeah, and when you were kind of 16, um, like late teenager, was there a person that kind of opened your eyes to kind of what feminism was and how you could kind of tap into those feelings? Or was it something you'd read or just it's sort of by osmosis you kind of discovered Discovered what kind of feminism and activism was. So I read Handmaid's Tale, okay. um, which I think is a, the sort of opener for most women. I met Margaret Atwood last year and I was like, you made wow. me a feminist. <laughs> she was like, Amazing. good. <laughs> I was like, it's your fault. I do all of this. Um, but so that was, that was sort of the, the first um, like feminist text I think I ever mm. really like engaged with. Um, and then also in this youth movement I grew up in, there's, um, there was a woman called Hannah um, Weisfeld who runs um, a charity now as well called Yachad actually, which is like left-wing um, Jewish Zionism, which is totally different from what I do. But she was always sort of, um, she was always really passionate about feminism and I didn't really get it at that time. I still didn't really get what she meant. I didn't really understand the inequalities I think you don't want to really believe it she was a good few years older than me but she was the person I think who really ignited it and there were things I started listening to mm. um when I still see her today occasionally I'm like hmm, you know <laughs> it's your fault it's your fault too it's not just Margaret Atwood <laughs> awesome um so moving forward into uh, what you do now, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about Bloody Good Period, um, kind of how that all started and yeah, your route into activism in that kind of context. Sure. So we've been going for three years now and we're now a registered charity as of last week. Well <laughs> done. Brilliant. <laughs> Finally. Um, but we got started. So three years ago, I was working in arts education and I was a nanny. And um, the dad of the nanny family um, said to me, I'm setting up this asylum seeker drop-in centre. Do you want to come and help? And I was just like, yeah, like I don't really do. I wasn't doing anything really good with my life. I mean, as in I didn't feel like I was really giving anything. And so I said, yeah, and I went along to the first one and we were given the list of all the things that we were going to be collecting, all the essentials. And on that essential list, there was nothing to do with periods. There was nothing really to do with women or people who menstruate specifically. And I had just read an article by Maya Oppenheim, and I think it was in The Independent or Vice. And it was about what homeless women do when they're on their periods. And asylum seekers, as I'm sure like many of the listeners will know, are often homeless, destitute. They're expected to live on £37.75 a week and nothing else, no benefits. Um, and so... My first thought was, well, how are people getting period products? Um, because obviously, as many listeners will know, half uh, like half of you probably like <laughs> I don't know what your demographic probably is. Probably more than half. Yeah. <laughs> more than yeah. half yeah. Um, the way that periods work is that they're every month, and often, more often, or they're very irregular, or they're um, very heavy, and basically, it's not it's not something that you can sort of 
just make go away, really, especially if you're someone who doesn't really have access to the doctors. Um, so when I asked about whether they had period products, um, I was told, well, we do like we give them out sometimes, you know, but in an emergency or when someone asks for them. And I was like, right, there are two things. That's not how this is going to work. Number one, periods are not an emergency. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the products you need, they become an emergency, regardless of who you are. And secondly, people won't ask for them. They're already surrounded so much in shame and silence mm -hmm. that someone might come up to you once and ask you for a pad, like I said, in an emergency. But they're not going to come up to you every week because if you're not making them accessible, then that's just not how it's going to work. So um, I was like, right, well, <laughs> I'll do something about this. Um, and went on Facebook and just put a status up that said, like, I'm collecting pads for this drop-in centre. Can anyone send them? And I think I really just thought it was going to be a few people sending me them. I really hadn't thought that far into the future. And... Um, I was just so surprised that like, they just came flooding in. Like there was just, it was constant. And it started being people that I'd never met before, like friends of friends, because I did it through an Amazon wish list. And you could put a little note and they started being notes from people that I didn't know. And they'd be like, oh, I'm wow. so-and-so's friend. And I'd be like, I don't even know who so-and-so is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, who are you? But it was amazing. And I started to realize like people really need to, to feel that they can do something. And, and I think there was such like, um, there was such a feeling of like helplessness, but also anger in the air. It was around the time of Brexit, Trump. And, you know, I think people were getting tired of just being expected to give money and not knowing where it was going. And the fact that we were just asking for pads mm. really gave people like a sense of agency. And so that basically was how we got started. And then pretty quickly, I realized that it couldn't just be about products. I didn't want to become like just another logistics company, um, getting pads to people, even though, you know, as important that is, as that is. So half of what we do is really just normalizing periods, just talking about periods, not even really talking about the taboo, not even really talking about the stigma, because actually, if you sort of talk about a taboo, you're basically just still clouding mm. the thing in the talk of taboo. So we just talk about periods. We just talk about the day-to-day, -day, what it is like to menstruate, what it is like to not be menstruating and basically getting people just used to the idea that periods are a normal part of life. They're not an emergency. They're not an illness. And they're not something that we can just leave tucked under the carpet because people are really struggling. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that they need food from a food exactly. bank. It's just, you know, your day-to-day -day life, what happens to people. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you can't really leave your house safely, yeah. basically, without, if you're in your period, without period products. And yeah. I think that's something that we're trying to get people to understand. It's not just, I mean, I think all women and people who menstruate understand this. And many men who are sympathetic and have met a woman in their lives <laughs> understand <laughs> but there are still some people who just think wow they'll get on with it and yeah. and they're the sort of I mean I have to say I don't really care about those people because if they really don't, aren't going to be empathetic they're never going to be empathetic but just for everyone to understand that it is it's an essential part of life to be able to manage your period safely yeah yeah and then with bloody good period how does that um kind of manifest through your organization so what what do you do to kind of combat those kind of attitudes or awareness well first things our name so we wanted it to be everything that we do is through humor and through sort of like a boldness 
Um, we were talking about your website. That the, your website the is great. great. Yeah, <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, thanks. It's <laughs> a lot to me. Um, yeah, it's all about just like talking to people in a frank and honest way. And the name is supposed to make people laugh. It's supposed mm-hmm. to make you feel at ease. My my main things about like how I wanted it all to come across with Bloody Good Period is no baby pink and no whispering, mm-hmm. like you know none of this sort of hyper feminine. Um, just let's not tell anyone about what we're going through. Like no, I'm mm-hmm. sick of that. I'm tired of having to whisper and I'm tired of having to shove my tampon up my sleeve. Like I think we're all sick and tired of that. And I think that's what Bloody Good Period does mm-hmm. by the way that we speak about them, by the way that we talk about we talk about injustice as well because it's it's not a, it's not an issue on its own and there is a reason why asylum seekers had been forgotten and that is because they are a forgotten group of people purposely marginalized and periods are also purposely marginalized so the intersection of that was of course it's going to be absolutely horrific for these people so like we're not sort of doing any like life changing work and we're not doing any saving lives but we are just making people's lives a little bit better for that month or at least just manageable mm-hmm. and that feels really important to me to just remind people that it's we're not saying we're saving lives actually we are just we're just helping people with their periods and periods are a big thing you know if you're having to think about it all the time they become massive yeah and also i mean you started off with this one um uh, asylum sort of hub that yeah you, drop-in center drop-in yeah. center and uh, but now you've expanded to yeah so now we work with huge. 40 wow um and and the funny thing is it could have been a lot bigger quite quickly because obviously there's such a huge demand but our policy is and always has been from the beginning is we won't work with somewhere unless we can promise you we'll work with you every single month. You'll have the amount that you need. There's no no one's going to have to feel like they're stockpiling or hoarding. No drop-in centre is going to have to feel that they have to store loads or they don't know what, what's coming in. And so that's why we're actually growing quite slowly. Um, and, and the other side of that is we don't want to become something that the government rely on that just happens you know they don't have to yeah, worry this about shouldn't it. be a problem exactly it shouldn't be your job <laughs> it should not be down to a charity yeah. in 2019 to care about absolute basic essentials um so we are working with the government on their task force um about that but i think it's really important that we strike a balance between working with people sustainably and reliably and also making sure that the general public realizes that this is not the way it, 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 it can be it should mm-hmm. be at all yeah, we find that too uh, in Christian Aid when we're, you know, something like poverty, just mm-hmm. global poverty. There's no easy solution. You can treat the symptoms and, and you have to mm-hmm. in the short term. But what you have to do most of all is advocate and mm-hmm. get to the very highest level, and make systemic change. That's really the only way that we're actually going to change anything for good mm-hmm. right and it's just it's really hard to communicate that to communicate complexity it's not sexy in yeah. the way of look we built this school people can go to school now yeah. that's simple people can grab that but this idea of like but we had to build that and the government isn't going to support that and yeah. so it's not going to work in the long term it's it's hard as a mm. as a comms person to get that out and yeah. that's why i was so impressed with your website that it just very quickly lays it all out in such funny readable language i think that's really it's, it's a hard thing to do well yeah i think it i mean i think there's a huge misconception about what charity actually does and and that is 
part, you know, part to some charities really messing up and being completely, you know, opaque and, you know, there's obviously all the scandal with Oxfam and everything last year, which mm -hmm. is just, even though it's actually sort of nothing to do with what we're talking about, it does sort of add to the lack of trust. But I think I, I once heard this comedian, I won't mention his name because I think, because <laughs> I'm about to diss him. But, um, <laughs> you know, he talked about how like, if charity worked, you'd give money once and then they'd close. And I was like, you're an absolute idiot. Like, <laughs> what do you think we're actually doing? It's not, if 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 that was the nature of the of charity, you wouldn't need charity in the first place. You just need a little bit of money. And actually, like, you have to have these long-term relationships with people that you are working on and you're advocating with people and you're advocating to the people who can actually make the decision. And it is, it's so long-term. When we first started out, I was like, we'll be done in five years. And... You know, I still we still work with that attitude that we will be we will not grow into this massive charity. We, it is just not where we want to be. But I realise now it, it might take a little bit longer than that. But I have to say, if we're here in twenty years' time, then I think we haven't done it right. Like that, I will promise. <laughs> Call me in twenty twenty. I hope I'm doing something else. I do think that uh, yeah, charities that are made to die are really interesting because they're like uh, again, just you know, we say. Um, we believe that global poverty is a problem that can that we can we can we can see a world where they, that isn't mm -hmm. something that's part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to have that goal. You mm -hmm. can't think that you're just putting band aids and stuff no. for the rest of your life. What's the point? You know, like you might as well just leave it then if you're going to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it, yeah. I think treating the symptoms is so important, but you are literally just making a rod for your own back. If that is the way that you're just your sort of plan is to continue, yeah, um, yeah. So you you mentioned before there are factors that make uh, period poverty worse. You were talking about being a feminist, and, uh, and uh, so what what are the factors uh, that are that are just making this such a big problem? I mean, you alluded to like it's people are making it seem like periods are shameful, and that's mm. a societal problem. Mm. Well, this is something that, I mean, we, so there's period activism now, right? In for the past five years, right? There was period activism in the 70s and I haven't even been able to find anything else before that. So we are dealing with like centuries and centuries of patriarchal, sexist shame and silence on women's bodies, basically. And it's, you know, Lots of people will have different opinions and why periods are seen as, you know, so shameful and secretive. I think a huge part of it is is the uh, Judeo-Christian religion and all the other different religions. A lot of it is just general sexism and, you know, a hatred of, of women, um, mm. you know, and how that plays out now is obviously quite different in terms of misogyny. Like you don't necessarily see it as being so obviously like women are disgusting, but like... You know, there's lots of different ways that um, that women are sort of made to feel terrible. And with that is sort of period advertising, which has been sort of around since like, I think like the 30s or something. And that has always concentrated on being clean, being quiet, being hidden away. Rollerblading, and I then, remember. And then later on, rollerblading, <laughs> yeah. which we all know the only time you do that is on your period. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, that's something that came into it later, which is like, you can do anything on your period as long as no one sees you on your period. Right. Um, as long as nobody knows that your body is functioning normally. And so we're like combating, we're sort of dealing with like 
uh, it feels sometimes like it's mountains and mountains of of shame and silence mm -hmm. and we're only really sort of cracking the surface a little bit like but that's really sort of where we are in terms of this. Like, it's not just about periods, it's about like female bodies. It's about there just isn't as much money spent on female health. They're just, you know, women aren't acknowledged for having pain. Um, you know, trans people aren't accepted. So trans men, for example, and non-binary people aren't seen as um, being the gender that they adhere to because of periods, for example, mm -hmm. and because periods are seen as such a part of womanhood, which actually I really don't believe is helpful at all. Um, and so, yeah, there's so much around it that just we are constantly fighting with. Um, and all of it is basically to do with sexism. You know, it's whether or not you realize it or not. And even our internalized misogyny where we hide it away and we don't want anyone to know that we're on our periods. Like that's something we've learned. It's not something inherent, um, you know, because it's not like actually like it's not the same as like going to the toilet which I've, I've been reading about like I've been reading about pooing sorry to bring that up so, like, <laughs> no, before 11am <laughs> but like apparently like you know genetically we are we have learned to hide ourselves away because you can't protect yourself while you're in such a vulnerable position whereas periods that's not how they work like mm. they just come out like it's not you're not actually aware of when you're menstruating most of the time so it's not the same thing we've learned to be ashamed of them we've learned from you know society from religion from advertising from media that there's something we should hide and that's we're not saying that you have to sort of display your period everywhere well i'm not some people find you know think that's important and that's totally great but it's just it shouldn't be secret it's yeah. not fair that it's secret private's fine it's not fair that it's secret and that it's shameful yeah I've just gone on a massive rant already and talked about that. That was great. Right. We love a rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you brought up, Pooh, um, I think it is <laughs> one of the sort of counter arguments I've heard from people who probably don't need this kind of airing their views, but mm. people who said, well, if women are getting period products for free, then I should get free toilet roll, you know? And I should, uh, that's what I should get from the government. And I think, but you do get free toilet roll. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> in every single toilet, public toilet you go into, there is a toilet roll. Yeah. So it is, I do kind of find it so perplexing. Some of yeah. the sort of counter arguments or things that people say in response to why women shouldn't have access to these or anyone shouldn't have access to these products. It's, yeah. it I is love very it's, perplexing. It's <laughs> fascinating because actually like, what if we just said, okay, fine. You only what you the only things you need in the toilet are things that will safely get you out of the toilet. So you need, let's say, actually, what do women need? Women need toilet paper or they need some sort of like water, right? What if we were just like men don't poo in public toilets? They just don't need to. You know, the way that people say, like, well, just don't get your period. Yeah. <laughs> like what if we were just like, just don't do it, and then you won't need toilet paper and then we can save loads of money? Like it would be absolutely outrageous to suggest that. And yet we don't think of it in the same way for like what, what women actually need. Mm -hmm. And for most of the population, it's not necessarily that people are like, we want this free because we deserve it for free. It's actually just, they're not particularly affordable a lot of the time. There just isn't the education around reusables, which there really needs to be because honestly, it's so much better sometimes for so many people. And also just that you don't need to be getting your entire month's supply from a toilet, a public toilet, but actually sometimes you just come on when you're not expecting it and you do need one pad, one tampon. And, you know, honestly, like that is all people are really asking for. And then for people who can't afford them, yes, actually they should be free. The way that condoms are free, the way that toilet paper is acceptable. Yeah. Um, it's not, 
like you said earlier on, like it's not a one size fits all solution. Like there's no silver bullet for period poverty. Like it has to be like a really holistic way of thinking about it. And I think toilet paper is always a really useful way to think about it because mm. like you do get it free. <laughs> if you really wanted to, you would never buy toilet paper again. But yeah, yeah. people just don't, just don't <laughs> see it. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's it, it all goes into this all um this idea that society has been run by men for so long that mm. it just doesn't occur to mm -hmm. to uh, authorities and things. Mm. I was reading in a book uh I think it was Come as You Are uh oh, this yeah. it's an amazing book and this idea that when they discovered Viagra they were like this is good for two things. It is really good to reduce uh, period pain and it's really good uh, with erectile dysfunction and they brought that to the medical board and they were like Let's put it all into erectile dysfunction, and it's just <laughs> wow! I had so no crazy. idea. I never knew that. Yeah. So uh, the the forces that shape our lives that we mm. it, we never yeah. even get near, we ever yeah. even understand that that's happened mm -hmm. is crazy when you yeah. start looking at it. And that reflects very clearly in even places where people are so caring and open, like a drop-in center, where the default human who is coming to the center is a man or you know someone who does not menstruate and therefore we're not thinking about women and people who menstruate as as um as valid as basically or their needs are as being as valid which is completely messed up but but you're right that is it's because we see the default male as the, the male as the default human mm -hmm. so you've published a new report mm -hmm. um which is amazing um with um women for refugee women all about the difficulties asylum seeking women have accessing period products and you focus on the testimony of four um women in that report um and yeah can you just tell us a bit more about that report um about the stories that are in that and yeah what it's kind of for anyone that hasn't read it yet <laughs> it's, so it's on our website so you can find it really easily it's just called period poverty report um but we decided to make this report three years in we've never made anything like this before because we've always been super conscious that we don't want any of the women that we're working with to feel that they have to extract their stories of trauma yeah. in exchange for the products that we give them and additionally most of the women that we work with are in states of trauma and therefore just not we would not have been able to support them to tell their stories at all you know um but once we started working on the government task force, which is the period poverty task force, which hopefully the name will change soon because I think it's, it's more than period poverty, mm -hmm. menstrual equity task force or whatever, um, we started to realize that actually not everybody is meeting these women that we're meeting day to day. And it's not really great for us to just tell their stories. They need to be able to tell their stories. And so we approached Women for Refugee Women, who are one of the, they're, they're sort of like, they've been going for over a decade and they work really closely with women they support. And we've worked with them on our education program. And so we asked them like, if they would want to publish this report with us and that they would be able to support the women that they were working with. We'd be able to give them a platform and it would be sort of on their terms how they told their stories. So that's how we did this. Um, and, you know, it's been, even doing this constantly for three years, reading the stories still shocks me. Mm. And I think that's good. I think it's important that we're shocked still by this stuff and we're not becoming sensitized to it. But it's really, it's, it's really alarming how much 
just not having period products can affect your life. I mean, one of the women who we talk to, you know, talks about how it's almost like a chain of events that getting her period sets off, mm -hmm. which is that she um, is staying with a family that she met at church and she can't get into the house because she doesn't have the keys. She needs to get into the house because she's just come on her period and she's wearing a white skirt. And so she has to... Um, she she goes into the back garden and has to rip off a tablecloth. I might be mixing two stories up. I don't think I am. And ends up having to wrap it around herself and then go into the McDonald's toilet and use her skirt as her pad. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's such a distressing story. It's such a distressing thing for her to have to go through, which is so fixable. If there was just, if she'd already had products that were available to her, if she just knew where she could get them, or she, to be honest, if they'd already been given to her for free, she would have had them with her you know, that kind of distress would not have happened. And we really need to get these stories out there for people to understand that, like, it's not just, oh, I've not got a tampon, I'll find one later. Like, it really, it sets off this whole chain of events that can be incredibly traumatic for mm -hmm. a person, especially someone who has already been through trauma yeah. and is already probably mid-trauma. So that's really why we decided to do it. It's not our usual sort of, you know, funny, silly selves, but it is also crucially important as well. Yeah. So that's why we decided to, to put it together. Amazing. Um, we, we don't know exactly what this podcast is yet, but one thing that we do know is that we want people who listen to it to be able to do something about mm -hmm. the issues we discuss. So um, where can people go to educate themselves more? What can they do for Bloody Good Period? So the best place to go is just to go to the website, so bloodygoodperiod.com. And... If you're in London or any of our other cities, you can volunteer. Um, additionally, what we always need is people to do fundraisers for us. So we used to say collect pads for us, but actually what happened is um, they just were so often not the products that people asked for. And even if you're incredibly specific, the person doing the fundraiser can say, we need this kind of night pad, we need this kind of panty liner people just want to be helpful and they just bring what they can. And so what we say now is do a fundraiser for us, do like a bloody brunch, do like a, a sunny supper, like a tampon <laughs> tea. You know, something we're obsessed with food, obviously. I mean, um, everyone is, aren't they? It's a great, it's it's a great way to fundraise. True. That's, it's basically what we are as Brits, isn't it? We just eat. Um, but yeah, so if you can do that, that's so helpful because then it means we buy the products in bulk and we can get them to the people that need them quickly and they're all in great condition and then they're exactly what people have asked for so that's always brilliant um, and it also funds our education program as well which means that we're getting to some of the women that we're already working with and providing gynae health and reproductive health and uh, education sessions about the menopause heavy bleeding basically anything in the knickers we will work with um <laughs> And also, if you just want to campaign, if there's something that you feel really passionately about in the sort of realm of periods and asylum seekers, then, then get in touch. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, for example, there's been a young woman who's been doing um, a campaign um, for the government to make sure that, oh, sorry, I don't know if it's for the government, it's for companies to tell us what is in period products, because we don't oh, know. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. It is horrific. Yeah. Like, we don't actually know what is in tampons because the companies do not have to print it on the box. Um, because we're not eating it regardless wow. it's still going inside of yeah. us um so someone's done that campaign you know um there's also there's so many campaigns i don't want to take credit for any of them because they're not they're not us but 
it's something that you can definitely do alongside us if it's something that you care about as well. Mm. Um, I was yeah. actually going to ask about that because there have been, yeah, some of the sort of quite high profile campaigning, like the pink protests yeah. and things like that. And how do you guys kind of work together, partner <laughs> with each other? Um, how do you do this? Sorry, it's a bit of a tangent away from that question. No, but um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, um, we yeah how you together. guys work together. Yeah, we work together wherever we can. So um so Free Periods, which was a sort of launched by the pink protest, that was Amica George, who's yeah. now, I think she's 19 or 20. Um, work with her wherever we can. Uh, we work with Red Box Project, who are now winding down because the Department for Education is promising to put products in schools. Um, we work with um, like Women for Refugee Women, for example. Um, any Any organizations that are doing something in our arena, we work with. We think, yeah. you know, one of our like, in our sort of um, manifesto, one of our, our points is that we have to collaborate and we work best together when we collaborate. Mm -hmm. So we know what we do. We are refugees and asylum seekers and we are periods. But aside from that, we sort of bring people in wherever we can. It's so important. Mm -hmm. We just can't do this on our own. Awesome. Um, and then our kind of final um, question that we've asked all of our guests is what gives you hope for the future? So what are the things that are kind of sparking that bit of sort of light around um that's giving you you hope oh, that's such a nice question um i think it's just it's just other people like i know that sounds so cheesy like <laughs> since great. yeah since i've been doing this I was already an optimist, but like, I think I became even more of an optimist because people are really good. I genuinely believe like 99%, 99.9% 9 of the people I come across day to day want to help and want to do something good. Mm. And I'm very, very rarely disappointed by people. And I think that is a luxury that I have because I'm working in something that that people have the chance to show me their sort of true colours. In, in do, you, do you know what I mean? In yeah. that sort of way. I mean, I think if probably if I was a lawyer or a banker, I wouldn't get people's best sides. <laughs> but because I work in, you know, this uh, charity and activism, I do. And that just spurs me on day to day. Like it's, it's you know, not just sort of the volunteers and team that I work with, but just, just the general public and the messages that we get constantly of just support. And, you know, you've changed the way I thought about this or I'm so glad someone else feels this way. That is really what gives me hope like mm. every day. It really, it still gives me a buzz getting notes from people through the, you know, through the packages that they send as well. Amazing. That's so fantastic. Uh, Gabby, thanks so much for coming to Thank talk to us. Thank you for having us. me. I've really yeah. enjoyed it. It's been brilliant. Uh, and for those of you listening, uh, I was going to say listening at home, but you could be anywhere, listening <laughs> on the bus, listening while doing a walk. Uh, please look at the episode notes. We'll put links to everything we talked about today so that you can go deeper into these subjects. Please do something, you know, make one tiny little action today. And that in the culmination will change the world. It's all that has ever done. So... Uh, wow, that sentence construction was rubbish, but, <laughs> but apart from that, it was it deep. Was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Motivational. Thanks for listening to The Advocado. The Advocado is produced by the Christian Aid Collective and presented by Chris Mead and Lydia Cotton. If you want to get in touch, follow us on Instagram at the CA Collective, on Facebook, or if you'd like to email, email collective at christian-aid.org. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the podcast, leave us a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. See you next time for another episode of The Advocado.